Welcome to this episode of the Chabura Members Only Edition. Here we have the second part in the series from Acham Eid Fa'ur on Masechet Sanhedrin. Enjoy! Welcome everybody, part two of Masechet okay. Sanhedrin with so, Hacham Fa'ur. Let's begin. Okay. All right. So I just want to start uh, today's class. I want to explain what I'm going to be doing. And in order to do that, I'm going to be sharing the screen um, with the source that was not on the resource sheet, but um, it's one paragraph. Um, and here it is. I believe you can see it, correct? Okay, good. Um, so this is a passage from uh, my father's article regarding how the Gemara was studied in the Sephardic Andalusian tradition. And um, it was studied in three stages. Uh, the first stage was what was called Girsa or Surat Hadish Mata. That's what we're going to be doing today. Um, the second stage was uh, Yun, which is not what we're going to be doing yet, although we will hopefully get to some Yun later. And then the final stage is uh, Talmud or Pesach Halacha Halacha Lemaaseh. Let me read to you now the paragraph regarding the first stage, Girsa, and, and I'm um, putting my arrow over it. I don't know if you can see it, but you probably could. I'm going to make it a little bigger. There you go. Okay, Girsa. The purpose of this first stage of studying Gemara is to know the shape of the Shemateta. Shemateta in Aramaic means the lesson. So as you know, the Yeshivot in Badel, um, they had these um, uh, lessons, which were basically summaries of discussions that took place in the yeshiva with respect to specific issues. So the summaries of these lessons are what we have in the Gemara. That's called the Shema Teta. So, so each sugya um, is actually a Shema Teta. It's a, um, it's a lesson. And each lesson was organized in a very specific way. So I'll give you an example. Those of you who may have gone to law school, um, when you study, um, you know, a particular case, so the case has the title, um, and then the case will have, let's say, the name of the court where it went to, the case may have some procedural matters, then they'll actually, they'll actually have a, um, a discussion of the facts, then they will have analysis of the law, that's a particular way to structure um, the particular case that came before the court. The structuring of the Sugyot and the Gemara is, was actually very different. The structuring of the Sugyot and the Gemara didn't, um, it was, wasn't based on that um, uh, breakdown, but rather what it was, it was a summary of the entire lesson that was given to the Talmudim. And oftentimes these summaries, um, they took place, or these lessons rather, they took place over several generations. So what you'll have in the Sugya is you'll have a multi-generational approach to a particular problem. You will see how this was uh, done in, um, um, uh, in, in one yeshiva, then maybe you'll see how it was done in the same yeshiva a generation later, right? So when the Gemara was edited, he took the various lessons and he put them together in an organized fashion. And what we have is the Shemua. Now, when the Gemara was uh, edited by Rabbi Nain they actually gave the Sugot particular structures, okay? Um, and the structures of the sugyot, or knowing the structure of the sugyot, is the first step in studying the sugyot. Now, now why should that be? So, um, when, when, when you're trying to organize information in your mind, and you don't really know where you're going, and what the next step is, and what the goal is, it becomes a little confusing and muddled, right? So, what, what the editors of the Gemara did is, they organized the sugyot in very, very particular fashion. So it would be easy to remember them by heart and go over it in your mind as, um, as you review it. So now when you have the structure, it's really easy. Well, it, I don't wanna say it's really easy, but, but it's easier to understand it by heart and to follow, the, um, to follow it mentally. In addition, as a student studying the sugyot beforehand, I tell you, here's the map. Here's what we're gonna be doing. You know, here's the various parts. And then we go over those various parts, then it's it's much easier for you to organize information in your mind and to follow the discussion in a meaningful fashion. So um, I'm now going to unshare my, my screen. Um, stop share. And voila, I'm gonna pin myself so you can see me more clearly. There, okay. Um, so let's let's now go forward. And I'm going to, uh, uh, do you all have the map of the sugya that I prepared? 
forward. Yeah, is it good? Is there is 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 there a need for it to be shared on the chat, or I can assume that everybody has it? Uh, what do you think, Sina? I can share it on the chat while you're speaking. I can share a link to it if you want, or you can share the screen, whatever is easier for you. Uh, so share a, you can share a link. Uh, to, I share a link to it on the chat. I think Michael's just posted it. There we go. Thank you, Michael. Okay, great. All right, so please open up that uh, map because this is what we're going to be doing today. I'm going to be taking you through this sugya, and I'm going to be taking to you through the Sunata Dishmateta level, and this will give you a this will give you all a bird's eye view of the sugya. Okay, so I'm going to give you a moment to open it up while I have another sip of my espresso, which was made special for this class. Okay. All right. All right, so here it is. So <clears throat> um, this sugya deals with a particular linguistic problem. The linguistic problem is the Mishnah, the first sentence of the Mishnah. We discussed that last week. And it's summarized um, in the first few words of the sugya. So the first few words of the sugya is basically telling you, here's what we're going to be dealing with in this sugya. So you see where um, I say Gemara, right? And then I have that in a gray field, right? The words are in a gray field. So just so you know, and so when you follow this map, this is gonna make your life easier. You'll notice that some of the letters have a colorful background to them. And then some of the letters don't have a colorful background to them, right? There's no background. The letters with the background are the words of the Gemara, right? So you'll see the words of the Gemara in the background shaded field. Right, and you'll know that's the actual Gemara, and the rest of the stuff is stuff that I'm writing about the words of the Gemara. So I just wanted to make this easy. So you see, there's a great background to the first few words. That was the problem. That was a problem under consideration. Namely, you will recall that the Mishnah starts and there's a certain redundancy. In adding the words gezelot v'chavalot v'shlosha, we already said dinim amolot v'shlosha. That includes gezelot v'chavalot. So that's a problem. That's a problem that Sudya is going to deal with. And I want to show you the map. I want to first give you a nice overview of the Sudya, okay? Um, in a very general fashion. So you see this part one, right? Which is in this big black bold letters. There's part two. If you go down, you scroll down to I think page two. There's part two, and there's part three. That's the sugya. This is called the sugya meshuleshet. It's called the sugya meshuleshet because there's three parts to the sugya. And you'll see that each one of the three parts of the sugya in turn has three subparts. Um, and uh, in, in, in fact, the first subpart of the first part of the sugya has three sub-subparts. Okay, and you're going to see it all, you know, nice, colorful um, uh, letters. Okay, so you'll see. Now, what I did is, um, again, I want to teach you how to use this map so that you can review it and understand this. Yeah. So let's look now, part one, the Biabhu's approach to the textual problem. Okay, that's in the page, first page. So this part one is going to deal with the Biabhu's approach to the, to, to, to the problem raised. And as I said, the Biabhu was in Eris Israel in Syria. He took a particular approach. Let's go now to part two. Part two is, it's gonna look at the same problem, exact same issue, exact same question, but instead of looking at it from the perspective of Rabbi Abhu, we're gonna look at it from the perspective of Rabbah. Rabbah was the Rosh Yeshiva, uh, Rabbi Abhu was the Rosh Yeshiva in Caesarea, as I mentioned last week. He was a Talmud of uh, Rabbi Yohanan, so second, third generation in Mona'im. Rabah was in was a Rosh Hashiva of Pombedita. Now, just so you know, in the days of Rabah, he moved the yeshiva to his neighborhood. So it's it's known as Rabah Dimhoza. Rabah Dimhoza means Rabah from the city of Mehoza. And in his days, the yeshiva moved to Mehoza as a special honor to Rabah. So it's it was the same yeshiva, with yeshiva from Bedita, but um but as I said, they moved to the city of Mechoza. So just so you don't get confused, thinking of oh, this Yeshivat Mechoza, which is one thing, Yeshivat Pombedita is the other. And Rava was the Rosh Yeshiva. Most faculty moved to Mechoza, not all, but most of them moved to Mechoza, and Rava was recognized as a Rosh Yeshiva. So part two of the Sugya is 
did the approach okay, so that's clear obviously it was different it was a different approach we'll see and finally scrolling i'm getting an indication that my internet is not stable if you can't hear me or see me please let me know and i will switch to a different um router which i have handy this time so i don't have to um you know interrupt for too long so so far can you all hear me and see me well so far, yes, it's just a little bit blurry, but it's coming in and out, but it's, it's okay for now. If it's, if it switches, if the situation deteriorates, let me know. I have this nice little thing and I could switch to it. Thank okay. You. Thank all right. You. Um, all right. So part three, part three of the sugya is going to be the rejection of Rabba's thesis by the next generation. Allow me to explain. The next generation in the same yeshiva. As I said, Rabab was Rosh Yeshiva in Pombedita, and there's going to be certain challenges to the way Rabab studied the Suya. So we're going to reject his approach. We're going to reject his approach, and we're going to um, finish the Suya. Um, we're going to finish the Suya with that. Okay? So the Suya is really simple. Uh, and where is that? That's in the last page. If you have the map, Part three, this is big black bold letters, part three, Roman numeral three, rejection of Rabbah by next generation. That's all. All right. Good. Now let's look at the let's look at each one of these major parts. Now let's, you know, go down to greater detail. Okay. So go back to page. I guess it would be page uh, two, really, because the first page is just the title page. So go to page two, the top of the page says a linguistic problem to be considered in Zubia one. Go to part one, the Rabia who's approach to the textual problem. Let's look at it. So this part one, Roman numeral one, is divided into three subparts. The first subpart, which is in the green letters and the big letter A, capital A, the interpretation of the Mishnah according to the Biyabu. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at how the Biabhu understands the Mishnah, the meaning of the sentences or the meaning of the words in the Mishnah, right? That's, that's one question. The second question, which is now um, capital B in the blue letters, the, the halachic position of the Mishnah, because there's a, there's a language. The number one is, how do you understand the language of the Mishnah? That's what that's part A. Part B is, okay, so what is the halakha? What is, what is the halakha according to Rabbi Abu? If you understand the Mishnah in one way, the halakha will be one way. If you understand the Mishnah in another way, the halakha will be another way, right? So that's part B. And finally, going to part C, right? Part C, which is in the, um, uh, in the orange uh, letters, a legal evaluation of Rabbi Hanina's position regarding the use of non-expert judges. Let me explain that a little. In, in part B, um, we're going to be introducing Rabbi Hanina, and we're going to be introducing a certain concept. And the concept is as follows. Can or may you use non-expert judges in the Jewish judicial system? So uh, generally, when you have uh, generally, when you have judges, right, right, you assume that the judges are experts, right, and that the judges are um, have certain qualifications, right, and that they've been, so to speak, vetted. So I want to read with you the Lashon of Harambam, just so you understand this concept a little. What do we mean by, you know, expert judges, you know, and what do we mean by vetting them? So if you go to the resource sheet, I believe I put it here, but maybe I didn't. Give me a mouth. I can always just open up. Ah, uh, here it is. It's if you look at the resource sheet, Mishneh Torah Sanhedrin 5.8. Um, hmm. And let's see how this works. Going to number four. I believe it's there. All right. Nope. Um, yeah, so what I would do now is I'm going to share the screen with you. I'll open up the Mishneh Torah and then I will share the screen with you. It's going to be Sanhedrin Perek He Halacha Het. Okay, so give me a moment. 
do you want me to share it? I've got the source sheet up if you want to have. It's up to you. Oh, oh sure. Okay, please do that. It's right here. There you go. That's the one. Ah, oh, very good. Good. So perfect. So let me read it. So dine kenasot. Right? Keron gezelot vahabalot. Betashlume hefel, betashlume alvaba hamisha. Vehaones, vehampote, veha yosebahen. En danin otam. Ella shelosha mumhim. Behemosemukim be eres Israel. Okay. So let me tell you what this is about. Yeah, and, and keep it there. Um, no need to uh, scroll uh, up. It's perfect, actually. So um, in, in, in Jewish law, there, uh, there, there's cases where the um, defendant um, would have to pay the amount of damages um, that he caused to the plaintiff. And that's just what are the actual damages. And the actual damages are whatever, you know, whatever they come out to. But then there are cases where there is a penalty provision where we're saying, okay, the damages were X, but you actually have to pay two X. That's a penalty. That's called the kenasot. And here are examples of cases where there's a penalty, gezelot. Um, gezelot is uh, some sort of armed robbery, for example. So vahamishito yosef alab. He would have to pay uh, a 20% uh, or 25, actually it's a 25% penalty. Havalot, uh, um, some sort of uh, injury. Um, that would be, for example, where you, um, a burglary, a, um, a, a hidden robbery, right? And uh, that's so that so he would have to pay double the amount that he robbed. Other cases, similar cases. Um, so these are all cases where there are penalty provisions. So in the case of penalty provisions, the halakha is very uh, careful. We don't want non-expert judges imposing penalties upon defendants. Because if you impose a penalty, you know, more than the actual damages, you have to be um, particular, you have to be careful, right? And that's why he says, In that case, you need to have three expert judges. So those cases absolutely require expert judges. Um, and how do you vet the judges? What's the vetting process? These judges will receive the semicha from other judges who themselves have the semicha, who are themselves expert judges. Um, and they will determine. So basically the vetting process is there has to be some sort of evaluation of the student by uh, a senior judge who himself has, is an expert judge. And he will determine whether the student is worthy or not worthy of being called a samuch. And if he's samuch, he will give him semicha, akin somehow or analogous. I don't like the word ordination, but I'm throwing the word ordination out there because you know, you're, you're all familiar with it. Okay. And this ordination takes place only within the judicial system existing in the land of Israel. So that's semuchim, the Edis Yisrael, of course, as you know, I don't think anybody's going to be terribly shocked to find out that there is no semicha today. There is no real semicha, not in Eris Israel, not in uh, America, not in London, right? Right. There's no semuchim be Eris Israel, and and one of the um, uh, questions that always arises is how is the semicha going to restart? Not the subject for our case. I mean, if there's no semuchim alive, then how can you ever restart the semicha? That's a different uh, question. Well, let's continue now in the. Um, in the text. But other is a case where one person admits that he owes money to another person, and this is done in the presence of witnesses. Somebody lends money from somebody else. In this case, you don't need a mumche. And the reason you don't need a mumche, you don't need an expert judge, is because the, there is no kenas. So because there is no kenas, we're, we're willing to rely on you know, business people, people who are familiar with these types of contracts, people who are familiar with these types of business transactions, because there is no kenas, and we will therefore say, well, look, he owes him $100, you know, he didn't pay the $100, let him pay the $100, right? You can have people who are not, did not receive this special semichat rabanut, 
ואפילו אחד מומחי אדם אותם. אוקיי, so that's what I wanted. I, will, I, I wanted to um, introduce you to the subject. I'm going to read one more sentence in הרמב״ם. לפיכך דנים בהודעות והלוואות וכיוצא בהן בחוץ לארץ. Outside the land of Israel, as, you, as, as we said before, the semicha is only inside the land of Israel. So outside the land of Israel, when there is no semicha, and today also inside the land of Israel, there's no semicha, we, we can have all the alva'ot. So today when you go to a court for dinema monot, the dinema monot will be for alva'ot ve'alva'ot, generally, right? Generally speaking, meaning nobody's going to go to a court today in Israel and say, he robbed me in the middle of the night. Um, I'd, like you, I'd like to get tashlum e'chepel, I'd like to get the double uh, liability paid to me. They won't do it because they don't have the authority to do it. And the reason they don't have the authority to do it is because there is no semicha, okay? Um, and that's it. So that's all. You can unshare the screen now, um, Sina. So, good. Okay. Uh, let's continue now. So, as I said, subpart C, which is that nice orange letters, right? A legal, so in subpart B, we're going to be dealing with the case of Mumchim, or we're going to be introducing the idea of Mumchim, we're going to be introducing Rabbi Hanina's position on Mumchim, right? And Rabbi Hanina's position is that you don't always need to have expert judges, right? You can have Hediotot. So we're going to evaluate Rabbi Hanina's position in this part C, okay? So now you see a very clear path. So again, the first part, the first major part, part one, Rabbi Abu's approach to the textual problem. It has three subparts. You see each one of the subparts clearly, right? So that when we study, when we actually study the sugya, you will know where we're going. Okay, let's now do the same thing for part two. Um, and, and by the way, I want to show you something. Look, for example, part one, subpart C, orange letters. Look at number two. You see in number two where I quote the Gemara, do you see that there's a big letter over there? Right, that's not a typo. That big letter with a squiggly line under the big uh, uh, under it, there's a squiggly line under the big letter, there's a bet, you all see it? That's meant to indicate that there is a variation in the girsa. And uh, having looked at the older manuscripts, I detected this variation. And I'm putting in the variation here. That's the squiggly line indicates where I accepted the girsah of you know, the older manuscripts. And when we study the sugya, you will see why these girsahs are so important. Because oftentimes when you're studying Gemara, there is something rather confusing in the flow of the text, not all the time. But sometimes that confusion can be uh, alleviated by looking at the old girsah and then the confusion um, can dissipate, right? So that's what that is. So if you look now, at part two, Rava's approach to the textual problem, right? If you look at A in the green letters, again, the Academy of Mechoza, you see how there's uh, a whole passage in the Gemara. I should have highlighted that in green. That was a mistake. Right? There's like a line going across. That indicates the past. I should have put a, I should have put a green background there also. I didn't. But nevertheless, that indicates that's the original Girsa. So right now, if you open up the Gemariot, you'll see that area where there's a line going through, and I'm going to read it for you. That line which, um, which goes through that text indicates that's actually what you will see in the Gemariot before you. You have the Vilna Shas, all of you have the Vilna Shas, that's the girsa in the Vilna Shas. Below it, you see I have the girsa as it appears in the older manuscripts, and you see the squiggly line, and it's a different girsa. Now, when we study this, you'll see the difference between the girsa. You'll see that the girsa as it appears in the Vilna Shas, at least from my perspective, is a, is a bit problematic and raises certain um, um, difficulties. And those difficulties are solved in this case by looking at the older girsa. So you'll see that. Okay, having said that, because I want you to know how to, how to read my map. This is a map of the sugya. I want you to know how to read it, okay? So let's look at each, each one of the subparts. 
So part A, subpart A, the Academy of Mehozah rejects the B-Abhu for textual consideration. So you can imagine that the subject of the Mishnah came up in the yeshiva. They brought the B-Abhu's interpretation of the Mishnah. And as they're studying the B-Abhu's interpretation of the Mishnah, this is several generations later in a different country in Babylonia, they raise certain objections. They say, listen, we, we disagree, right? They can do that. Um, so they raise those uh, difficulties. That's in, um, that's in part A, part B in the blue letters. The interpretation of the Mishnah according to Rabbah. So what is the alternative explanation of the Mishnah? That will be in part B. How does Rabbah understand the Mishnah? And finally, part C, um, what compelled Shemuel to interpret the Mishnah in this manner? Um, as you will see, and I, I'm, maybe I could have been a little more clear here, it should have been what compelled Rava to interpret the Mishnah in this manner. So forgive that, you know, um, confusion. Uh, but part C is going to tell us why Rava interprets the Mishnah as he interprets it. Okay, and that's it. That's the end of um, that's the end of part two. Let's go now to part three. All right. Part three actually takes place in the same yeshiva. We said part two took place in yeshiva Bombedita, which was physically located in Nehoza at that time. And part C takes place in yeshiva Bombedita. Okay. So, you know, and this is, by the way, this is the beauty of Talmud Torah. And, and I want to, it would be okay if I make a slight digression here. Okay. You know, and, and this happens all the time. You know, anytime, you know, halachic issue comes up, oh, but this rabbi said that, you know, and I hear other rabbis when they give classes, this rabbi said that. Um, you know, one of the issues that comes up, I'm just going to, you know, throw it out there. Some of you may have seen my class on using an electric, um, electric lamp for Nero Chabat, the permissibility or more invalidity of using uh, an electric lamp for Nero Chabat. So listen to the classes. This rabbi said that, that rabbi said that, but this rabbi said that, and this rabbi said that. You know, the only thing missing from these discussions is can somebody actually look at the law and look at the Gemara and tell me what does the Gemara say? Give me an actual legal analysis. It's, it's missing and I, and I hear that all the time. I mean, not, not well, no. There, there's some, there's some who give very good halakha classes, but there's a lot of that going around where they start quoting rabbis and this rabbi said and that rabbi said and and can you explain the law? Can you analyze what's a ner, what's a ner shabbat? You know something. Give me some sort of you know understanding. And what we see in the gemara, you know, if the gemara was this rabbi said that, you wouldn't have a gemara, right? The whole thing would be you know be like you know the whole gemara would be like five pages. This rabbi said that. And that's, you know, that's the end of the discussion. I guess that's the end of the discussion. But here you see that in Yeshivat Pombedita itself, Rava was one of the greatest, most revered, most respected Rashi Yeshiva. And they're not embarrassed to challenge him and to ask questions against him, as Rava was not embarrassed to challenge the great student of Rabbi Yochanan. He's challenged Rabbi Abu. This is the nature of Torah study, right? So when I try to study Halakha, you know, I could be wrong but at least analyze the subject. You understand meaning? Analyze the subject. And if you want to quote rabbis, of course, you can quote rabbis, that's great. You should quote rabbis, you should read what they said. You should understand what they said, but it doesn't stop there, right? So the great lesson of the Gemara is keep studying and use your mind to try to understand, to try to understand clearly what and what the legal issues are, right? All right, that, that's important. That's really, uh, I think there was um, um, a student of my father, his name is Rabbi Alan Uter, who, by the way, is great. He writes articles. I, I, I recommend him very. Uh, can you still hear me? I'm getting a message that my internet connection is uh, unstable. Yeah, it was a little cut out a little bit, but. Uh... Okay. Um, so the uh, Rabbi Alan Uter, a, a really fantastic writer who wrote many, many articles on many subjects, his son, um, I think his son's name is Josh, he, he poetry. 
It's, it's cut out again, Rob. You may want to change it. Follow tweet like. I will do that. Give me a moment, please. Okay. Am I back? For now. For now. I think I think this should be better. I think this should be better. Um, and uh, hopefully Thank there'll you. be no issues. Right. And you can hear me well now? No. Uh... So far, yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, Godolatry. <laughs> Godolatry, I think, was, a, was, a, was coined by Josh Uter. Um, and the idea of Godolatry is, you know, there's a Godol. The Godol says something. And that's it. The only problem is you always have different gadols and different gadols say different things. So, you know, it's not, it's nothing against um, revering and respecting Chachamim. Of course not. We respect and revere all Chachamim, but that's not the way of Pesach Halacha, right? The way of Pesach Halacha is to understand the issues and to analyze the issues. But okay, be that as it may, that's a great lesson from the Gemara. So let's look at part three. Rejection of Rava by the next generation. All right. This part three is um, I'm going to, it starts with a statement by Rav Ahab who introduces something, let's call it revolutionary, um, dramatic, and that is the permissibility of adjudication by a single judge or by an individual judge, in contrast to uh, Rav Right. Um, part B, we'll look at the requirement of three judges. Where does that requirement come from? And then part C, we'll offer three challenges to Rav Aha's uh, thesis. So that's it. That's, that's the whole sugya right there. The whole sugya, you just have the summary. It's all been mapped out to you. We can begin studying the sugya now. But this is the surata dishmateta. Um, you should all have a very clear picture. And just seeing it on the actual colorful map, which I made, um, will hopefully help help you follow the class that I'm now about to give in the few minutes that we have left. Okay, any questions till now before we go to part two of the uh, the um, class? Okay, good. So here's what I want to do in part two. In part two, I want to take you through the actual language of the Gemara. Okay, so. We're going to start with um, the beginning. The title is, uh, just one second, please. Let me just open up my notes. Right. OK, good. So let's now start with the actual text of the Gemara. I'm going to be reading the text as it appears on the map, because when it's on the map, it's just so much easier to follow. But you know, if you have a proclivity towards books, as by the way, I do, I was like using books. Just in this case, I'm going to be using the map because it's here and it's easy to follow. If you wish to open the book, open the book. If you want to follow the map, follow the map. The words are all here. Okay, let's start. So, Gemara. Um, and I'm going to read it with the uh, melody, the traditional melody of reading Gemara. Uh, uh, the question is clear. Do you mean to say that gezelot v'chavalot are not included in the category of dinema monot. That was a question. And now we're going to have the, the, uh, the first two parts of the Gemara will deal with that specific question. Here is the Biyabhu. Um, now, look at part one, the Biyabhu's approach to the textual problem, and you'll see that part A, the interpretation of the Mishnah according to the Biyabhu, itself has three subparts, right? Because you didn't have that in the other, um, if you go down to part two, uh, part two of this yeah, just has A, B, C. A wasn't further divided into three subparts, right? Just, I want to make you aware of that. Um, but here, if you look at part one, you look at A, A is a part is divided into three subparts. Look at B, B is divided into three subparts, and you look at C, C is divided into three subparts. So it's really, really the Chachamim, it's hard to say, I know people like to say that everything is a coincidence, the theory of evolution and all that, I got it. 
um, this is a text. Um, I, you know, it, it's very uh, compelling. The idea that the hachamim did this intentionally is is, is very compelling because then you see the sugya after sugya after sugya. You know the way it's structured. It just it's like okay, so they they knew what they were doing. And the hachamim separadim in the Andalusian tradition when they studied the sugyot according to sugya surata dishmateta, they 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 apparently had a uh, a very solid tradition as to how to study gemara. So you see it here before you. Okay, so let's go now. Rabbi Abu's approach to the textual problem. The first is subpart A. The interpretation of the Mishnah according to the Biyabhu, and it's as follows. Number one, the actual interpretation of the Mishnah. Here it is. I'm reading it to you. Amar Biyabhu, mahen katane, mahen dinem amonot, gezelot, bahalalot, aval hodaot, bahalvaot, la... Okay. The Biyabhu says, to properly interpret um, uh, the Mishnah, you have to read the second clause, Gezelot v'chavalot, as that is. So the reading of the Mishnah is Dinema Monot And when I say Dinema Monot, Mahen, what is Dinema Monot? Gezelot v'chavalot. So Gezelot v'chavalot comes to interpret, but more importantly, limit Dinema Monot. When I said dinema monot, I didn't mean all dinema monot. What did I mean by dinema monot? Gezelot v'chavalot. Okay, so again, Amar biyavu mahen katane mahen dinema monot, gezelot v'chavalot. By the word dinema monot, Rabbeinu HaKadosh meant specific type of dinema monot. Gezelot v'chavalot. Aval hodaot v'halvaot la... But as far as hoda'ot, which we explain, a person admits that he owes money to another person. As far as halva'ot, a person lent, borrowed money from somebody else. This is not included in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is not dealing with that. Dinema monot bishloshah does not include hoda'ot v'alva'ot, although hoda'ot v'alva'ot is part of dinema monot, but this is not what's meant by the Mishnah. Why? We'll see. But this is the interpretation of the Mishnah. Now, subpart two is going to explain the reasoning of Rabbi Abu. It's going to explicate Rabbi Abu's interpretation. And here it is. And, and, and we needed to formulate the Mishnah. Serikha means it was a necessity. What was the necessity? The formulation of the Mishnah in this way, namely, that formulation was a necessity. Why? If the Mishnah would have only said the words I would have, of course, understood the words to include all and therefore I would understand the Mishnah to include but as you remember, it doesn't include according to the uh, Yehud. And that's why it adds, after it says, it immediately clarifies. By this, I mean, <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Continuing. If the Mishnah would have, instead of saying Dinema Monot Bishlosha, Gezelot Bachavalot Bishlosha, the Mishnah could have said Gezelot Bachavalot Bishlosha. Why not? And then I would know it's Gezelot Bachavalot Bishlosha and not Hodot Valvaot. So, the Itana Gezelot Bachavalot Belakatane Dinema Monot. If it would have just said Gezelot Bachavalot Bishlosha, that would have led to a potential misinterpretation. Hava Amina, I would have understood the Mishnah, or I, I would have believed that the Mishnah means. I would have understood that Gezelot v'chavalot comes to illustrate a type of dinema monot, right? If it would have just said Gezelot v'chavalot bishlosha, I would have said, yeah, okay, Gezelot v'chavalot and other things like, it would have been Gezelot v'chavalot, etc. Bishlosha, an implied term, right? Remember last week we spoke about implied terms? I would have understood Gezelot v'chavalot, etc. Bishlosha, that's the way I would have understood it. And again, what would be the problem? 
that I would think that the Mishnah includes Hoda'ot Bahalba'ot. And that's a mistake. It doesn't include Hoda'ot Bahalba'ot. <laughs> All right. And the reason, uh, according to this particular um, uh, line of thinking, that um, the Mishnah, when it says Gezelot Bahavalot, it means Gezelot Bahavalot, etc. Right? What, so why, why would the Mishnah choose Gezelot Bahavalot as the Example of dinema monot. Why? Why do that? I mean, why? Wait, the, according to that, the Mishnah could have said hodaot uh, v'halvaot, etc. Bishlosha. Why did it choose gezelot v'chavalot bishlosha? According to that line of reasoning, and the answer is mishum deikal shlosha dichtivi bigzelot v'chavalot ketive. Because the Mishnah would have been following the lashon of the chumash. Um, uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. I'll explain that in a moment. But again, again, if the Mishnah would have said, I would think that's a general category that includes If the Mishnah would have said, I would have thought means etc. And the reason the Mishnah chose as an illustration of right? it's because the Torah uses or it's following it's following the um, the lashon haTorah. It's following the um, um, the fact that the Torah itself illustrates the law of three judges in the case of Gezelot. So it's following the Torah, and that's why it chooses Gezelot v'Chavalot and not Hodaot v'Halvaot. All right. Again, the Haide Katanei Gezelot v'Chavalot Mishum Teikal Shelosh Adichtivi Bigzelot v'Chavalot Ketivi. Okay. So therefore. What's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is dinema monot bishlosha. That is gezelot b'chavalot. It couldn't have just said dinema monot. It couldn't have just said gezelot b'chavalot. It had to say both, and only by saying both, it's pointing us to a certain direction. Okay, so that's the that's the um, that's the textual analysis of the first few words of the Mishnah. As Rabbi, uh, as Rabbi Abu analyzes it. There's one last thing that we kind of have to tie up, and that's going to be subpart three. We said, we said that um, in choosing it was choosing um, as the model what the Torah uses as a model to teach us. So where is it that the Torah teaches us the law of with respect to Gezelot? So right now in subpart three, it gives us where, now let me explain to you, this is a summary of a mechilta. There's a mechilta, and I think it's in the resource sheet. If you open it up now, just go to the resource sheet for a moment. I think I have it somewhere as well. Okay, at least I think I have it. Oh, there you go, okay. Very good, so there's a mechilta. This is now, just so you understand, the, uh, the book of Shemot has two mechiltot. The book of Shemot has mechilta derbi Ishmael, and it has mechilta derbi Shimon bar Yochai. This is mechilta derbi Ishmael. So if you can please uh, scroll, yeah, scroll, keep scrolling down. So here you have the mechilta, and in the mechilta, you have this terasha. This terasha is brought fully in the mechilta. Meaning, how do we learn the laws of three Dayanim? So the Mechilta brings certain Pesukim that have to do with robbery. And in those Pesukim, the word Elohim, which means judges, appears three times. And the Mechilta teaches us, why does the word, why do the words, or why does the word Elohim appear three times? To teach us that you need a minimum of three judges in the case of Gezelot. All right, is that clear? Right, so that's a mechilta. Now, why am I not reading the mechilta with you right now? I'm just made you aware of it. Why didn't I read it with you? Because um, further down, they're gonna go through the mechilta, I think in sugya number three, right? In sugya number three, they're actually gonna go through this mechilta. So I, don't, I don't find it necessary to take you through the mechilta. I do find it necessary to explain to you what's happening. So where 
with respect to which monetary issue do we learn the law of Shelosha Dayanim in the Fumash? And the answer is with respect to Gezelo, right? So now you see the, now you can unshare the screen. So now you understand the, uh, the reasoning of the, um, of Rabbi Avu's uh, explication, of the explication of Rabbi Avu in part, subpart two. Since we learned the law of three Dayanim in the context of Gezelot, that's why the Mishnah would have brought Gezelot b'chavarot b'shlosha, right? And I would have learned, oh, but it means etc. It's just giving us, it's giving us a case that appears in the Torah, but it appears for all, um, but, but the, this law of Shalosha Dayanim, this law of three judges, it applies to all um, um, cases of monetary issues, right? That, that, that's, that's the, that's why. So the Ikan Shalosha Dichtivi, Bigzelot Bahavalot Ketivi. Now, um, and now look at part three. So part three is going it's, as I said, it's an allusion to this particular, Mechilta, um, right? So here we go. I'm reading to you part three now. Gezelot dichtiv. Minikra balabai dila Elohim. And it's just, it's, again, it's paraphrasing the Mechilta. The Mechilta continues, right? So it's a little confusing. You're saying, you're looking at this, you say, well, I only see the word Elohim once. People, in order to, perhaps I should have said this, um, as part of the admission to the yeshiva, um, the people, the, the Talmidim had to be experts and had to be fluent in the Tosefta, in the Sifra, in the Sifre, in the Mechilta. So it wasn't necessary in the context of the Suya to bring the entire Mechilta because people were familiar with the Mechilta. So it's just kind of bringing you the, the first sentence of the Mechilta. So Gezelot Dichti Vinikra Balabait Elohim. Havalot, Mali Haval Begupo, Mali Haval Bemamono. What about Havalot? Let me explain this to you. If you look at the Pesukim over there in that same place, it deals with the laws of Havalot, with the laws of injury, right? Um, and the lesson here is if Gezelot uh, requires three Dayanim, right? And Gezelot is, you know, relatively simple um, matter. A person robbed, he was caught. He has to return what he robbed, the amount, the value, the value of what he robbed, and he has to be penalized according to depending on the particular situation, right? Of course, in the case of, for example, Havalot, a fire spread, there's a lot of questions. You know, was it was it was it windy? Was it foreseeable? Was it reasonable? Right? There's all these questions. So if in the case of Gezelot, the Torah says you have the word Elohim three times, and therefore we learn you need to have three judges. And, and it brings right there the laws of Havalot. Of course, the law of three judges applies as well for Havalot. I think you all understand, and I said this last week, that when I say, of course, right, Kalvahomer, a fortiori, um, there's a foregone conclusion, right? There's a foregone conclusion. There's an understanding of the law, right? Meaning nobody actually sits down at these Pesukim and wait, how many judges do we have to use uh, in a case of financial matters? Well, let, oh, wow, let's count the number of times that the word Elohim appears. Oh, and if it appears there, let's, you know, of course it should ap apply to Havalot. Uh, later on, the Pasuk says, Im kesef talvet ami, the laws of Halvaot, right? Um, so the point is, it's, it's, um, it's rhetoric. I take it seriously. I take it very seriously. And by, by the way, Harambam says in the Monene Bukhim, a lot of this rhetoric contains within it many of the secrets, many of the sodot of the Torah. So I don't mean to belittle it, chas v'shalom. I'm not belittling the rhetoric. I'm just pointing out what came first, the chicken or the egg. What came first, the law of Shilosha Dayanim or the derivation from the Pesukim? And the answer is the law of Shilosha Dayanim came first. And the derivation is a rhetorical device used to tie the pre-existing law that we received by tradition to the Pesukim. Very important. I think I just saw people many visits to psychologists and, and, and many other such issues that can you know, apply if you look at it the other way around. So I'm just trying to help everybody here and, and be kind and gentle. Um, so that's important. That's important um, to know that, right? Um, so I will, <laughs> I will go on now to the next part of the sugya. And therefore, and, and finally, Rabbi Avu's conclusion, which is a repetition of one, that's why I call it number one, because it just repeats the same thing. That's why Tana, and this is why the Mishnah or Rabbeinu Kadosh, when he formulated the Mishnah, he says, so 
דיני ממונות בשלושה מה הם דיני ממונות? What do I mean when I say דיני ממונות? Do I mean all דיני ממונות? No. גזלות וחבלות. I mean גזלות וחבלות, אבל הודאות והלוואות ל... But this comes to exclude הודאות והלוואות. That's it. That's the first subpart of part one. Again, we're studying now to be Abu's approach to the Mishnah. We just looked at the textual issue from the textual perspective. Now we're going to look at the Rabiyabhu from a halachic perspective. Okay, let's do it. We have a few minutes. It's remarkable. It's an espresso. It's a double espresso. It should have been finished 45 minutes ago. So I can only conclude that I'm doing something right because you all are familiar with the Kad Hashemin of Elisha Hanavi and the poor lady who had to redeem her children from slavery and she just kept pouring and pouring and pouring and the miracle happened and she didn't, uh, the oil never ended. So I'm, I'm making a similar analogy with my espresso. Maybe I'm exaggerating, I don't know. Uh, nevertheless, let's get to uh, part B. Part B, the halachic position of the Mishnah according to the Biyahu. So part B starts with the following word. The word is Ulmai. Ulmai um, literally means for what reason? Meaning, for what reason would the Mishnah include Gezelot v'chabalot in Dine Mamonot and say Dine Mamonot bishlosha, meaning you need three judges in the case of Gezelot v'chabalot, but you don't require three judges in the case of Hodaot v'halvot, apparently. I mean, if you're telling me that Hodaot v'halvot is excluded from that, from the Mishnah, that, well, then you're telling me that it doesn't require three judges. So is that, is that what you're saying? So, ilema, and that's exactly the first part. Ilema de la ba'enan shelosha ve'ha'amar bi'abhu shenayim shedanu dinema monot de'tibre ha'kol en dinehem din ela de la ba'enan mumchim. Okay. Perhaps, ilema, when you when the Biavu excluded Hodaot Bahalvaot from the purview of Dinema Monot, did he mean to say that Hodaot Bahalvaot do not require three judges? That, that would be a rather unusual conclusion. And the reason that, that would be a rather unusual conclusion is because here the Gemara says, Biavu himself says, Shenaim Shedanu Dinema Monot, two people, judges, sitting and adjudicating a financial matter. This is an improper, there wasn't a proper quorum. Um, you, you need three judges, two judges. It's an invalid ruling. But so obviously you cannot say that the Biyahu is trying to teach us that do not require three judges. Of course they require three judges. He himself says so. Ella, rather, so apparently the intention of the Biyahu was to say that in the case of you don't need to have expert judges. Remember we studied Harambam, right? You need three judges. You just don't need expert judges. So that's a halachic consequence. So again, you see, you have first the textual interpretation of the Mishnah, that's one subject. And now the second subject, what's the halachic consequence? And the halachic consequence is, apparently according to the Biyavu, in the case of Hadaot Vahadvahot, you do not require um, uh, expert judges, right? Okay, we're gonna challenge this. Subpart two, exegetical challenge to and then defense of one above. So we're going to challenge it. My kasava. Um, what is the, again, this is rhetoric. How does Rabbi Abhu read the perashiot in the Torah, the relevant perashiot in the Torah? I kasava, eru perashiot katukan, liv ayename mumhin. Ve i kasava, en, I'm sorry. <coughs> I'm 
I'm going to give you just just so we can finish it up because I, I see that we have four minutes and we will we will continue next week from this point in the sugya. But how does Rabbi Avu read the relevant passages? You remember that we showed you the, the passage in Perashat Mishpatim from where we learned the law of Shelushah uh, Dayanim, right? Now, in that passage, a little um, uh, further down, you have the law of, um, uh, of um, Halva'ot, right? And the question is, we said, for example, that the law of Shelushah Dayanim applies to Havalot, right? Which is there in the Perasha. And now, if you go a little further down, you have the laws of Halva'ot. So how, how exactly are you reading this um, passage in the Torah? My are you, I, I, the, apparently, we would think that the Perashiot is somehow connected. There's a connection, they're mixed in, but literally means, uh, means the things from one Perasha or the laws learned in one Perasha impact upon the second Perasha. And vice versa, potentially, right? So, if you're going to tell me that the laws in Gezelot, um, namely Dayanim, apply to the laws of Halvaot, right? Because there's a roof perashiot, right? You only would learn that if you say that the perashiot are connected. Then, in that case, you can't pick and choose. Well, it also says you have to have mumpim in the case of Gezelot. So you can't say, oh, you have to have shaloshad dayanim because of eruv perashiot, but you don't need mumpain. Well, if there's eruv perashiot, then you need to take, you know, um, a person sometimes wants to marry a lady or not marry a lady. She's um, she's uh, she's tremendous eshet Maybe she's not good looking enough for the person. You know, I mean, you know, you 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 have to take the lady as she is, right? You, you can't, uh, right? So eruv perashiot is exactly that. This is a perasha. The perasha says you need three dayanim. The first, the Perasha of Gezelot says you need to be dining. The Perasha of Gezelot says you need Mumpayim. If you're going to say that the laws of Shelosha Dayanim apply to the law of um, Alba'ot, well, then also the laws of Mumpayim apply to the laws of Alba'ot, right? So, again, if you say that the Perashot are connected, then the same way you learn the laws of three Dayanim from Gezelot, you learn it to Alba'ot, you would also learn the, the law of Mumpayim from Gezelot to Alba'ot. If on the other hand, you say, no, 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 the two perashiot are not connected. And the reason you want to say the two perashiot are not connected is because you don't want to have the laws of mumchim that you have in Gezelot apply to the laws of halva'ot, right? Then in that case, well, how do you learn the laws of three dayanim in the case of halva'ot? So, so the answer is, Actually, there is eruv perashiot. Actually, you learn the laws of three dayanim. In the case of Allah, you learn it from its connection to the parasha of Gezelot. And also the law of Mumchim from Gezelot applies to Halva'ot. So Ubdinhu, according to the standard norms of the word din, din is a means judicial analysis of a verse. Ubdinhu the proper judicial analysis of these verses would indeed require that the law of Mumchim, which appears in the case of Gezelot, applies to the laws of Halva'ot. Yes. So well, then why don't we have Mumchim? That's a separate subject. That's number three. That's what we're going to see. I'm reading it to you now. Number three, there was a Tana called Rabbi Hanina, and this Tana rejected the use of expert judges in certain cases. And it's because of his rejection of the use of expert judges that actually we don't follow what we would normally conclude. Normally, the conclusion should have been, and maybe until the days of Rabbi Hanina, the conclusion was that you need three dayanim in the case of Alba'ot, and you need mumchim. Later on comes Rabbi Hanina and rejects the idea of mumchim. We'll have to explain this later, and we'll see how this rejection affected Rabbeinu HaKadosh when he um, uh, edited the Mishnah. That's next week. For now, it's, it's past the time, but I do want to give you the opportunity to ask questions. I have not been looking at the chat. I don't know if anybody had a question that they posted for me on the chat, but if it is, you can raise your hand and just, you know, Thank you, Akhan.
Um, let's see if there are any questions in the chat here. Or would anyone like to mute and unmute and ask a question? Nope, no questions. I guess not. Pretty clear. <laughs> okay, okay, excellent. So I'm looking forward to seeing you all next week. Please, yes. you have the map now, review it carefully. Um, and uh, hopefully we will be able to uh, maybe even finish the sugya next week, perhaps at least, you know, this, this analysis that we've been doing. Yes, please. Fantastic. I was saying it feels like we have a cheat code with your sugya map. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, really, really helpful and uh, kind of gives a macro and micro view uh, of the sugya. So uh, looking forward to the whole sefer, please, God. No rush. All right. All right. Thank Great. You. Over Take care. Bye. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Chabura Members Only Edition. Here we have the second part in the series from Acham Eid Fa'ur on Masechet Sanhedrin. Enjoy! Enjoy!